0: If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we ask that you humble us now, that you allow us to to hear from your holy word, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us through it, and that, Lord, we truly would have transformed hearts, that we would have a greater understanding of what life is like in your kingdom as you prescribe. Allow us, Lord, to be in awe of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this. In the finished work of christ alone amen well we're almost midway into matthew chapter 19 and i i think this is an appropriate time to consider one of the major themes within this section of matthew jesus christ has come into the world to establish his kingdom meaning his rule upon the earth as the rightful king he is a different kind of ruler than the world is used to dealing with And because he's so different, he receives opposition from the current religious authorities as he strives towards his goal. And what becomes clear is that the kingdom of heaven is unlike anything or any of the kingdoms of the world. Unlike recent events where we have seen a megalomaniac take a neighboring nation by force, Jesus will purchase his kingdom with his own blood. He will transform his citizens by his great love, freeing his people from the captivity of their sins. With the coming of the Christ, there will be a new world order. Things will be different. And within this portion of Matthew, our Lord begins to describe what his kingdom will look like in greater detail as it moves towards its fulfillment. And as students of the Bible, it it is easy to focus alone on what Christ did in his atonement and then kind of lose sight of what Jesus taught his kingdom would look like. I confess, this was an issue with me at one time. I, I was more interested in what Jesus had done on my behalf than I was with looking at the bigger picture of what Jesus wants to accomplish in addition to saving my soul. It was the equivalent of being excited at having a ticket for the big show and yet having no idea what the show was all about. So in this section, we need to pay attention to how Jesus is describing life in his kingdom. What is valued by the king? What are the roles of his subjects? What will be the mission that we are supposed to serve? How do we become citizens in his kingdom? Now, I'm going to move through the rest of this chapter rather quickly together. And you're probably going to wonder, well, Blair, are you going to skip over how Jesus loves the little children? No, I will not. But I'm not going to take as much time with verses 13 to 15, because I think Brother Brian did a fabulous job covering this passage on Sunday to Life Sunday. And as such, I see no need to do a deep dive into those verses. I would rather us look at the chapter overall. Because if we can zoom out and see the bigger picture, it will lead to greater discoveries in the later chapters. Because if we keep our hearts open, we will see what our Lord values. We will have an understanding of what our king cares about. Perhaps it will cause us to be a little convicted about whether or not we value the same things. Maybe it will change our ambitions about what we are trying to achieve. But most importantly, I hope it will cause us to lay hold of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, if you will, turn back into your Bibles, into Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. This is found on page 824 of your pew Bible. So the first thing that I would like us to see is this emphasis upon the kingdom of heaven throughout this chapter and beyond. After this confrontation regarding marriage and divorce with the Pharisees, Jesus speaks about those who intentionally remain unmarried, verse 12, making themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 14, when Jesus speaks about not hindering the children from coming to him, he states why, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 16, Jesus is approached by a wealthy young man who is concerned about eternal life that interaction causes jesus to make a pronouncement about wealth being a hindrance to entering the kingdom of heaven in verse 23 and that is followed by jesus describing conditions in the quote new world he uses kingdom language such as when our lord is sitting on his throne and jesus explains how one inherits eternal life in contrast to how the rich young man was thinking he could obtain it And when we get on to the next chapter, the next parable in chapter 20 that Jesus provides is a comparison to the kingdom. The mother of James and John, noting this kingdom language here, wants her sons to sit on both sides of the throne of Jesus in the latter part of the chapter. I could go on, but I hope you see that there is a dominant theme concerning the kingdom of heaven. And as such, Jesus is revealing more and more about how one enters it, what it will be like, and what he, as the king, values. Now, it's obvious from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, that Jesus values marriage. He declares that when a man is considering divorce, that he should go back and look at God's original intention for marriage. He emphasizes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the two shall become one flesh. And as we saw from Paul's writings back in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage is to be a picture of covenant fidelity that Jesus has with his bride, the church. Marriage is important not just because it's the ordained means of uh, procreation-producing children. It is the display of God's glory on earth as it depicts this covenantal relationship with his people for all of eternity. Therefore, our commitment to our spouses is a kingdom-oriented issue. It pictures an eternal relationship that we have with Jesus within his kingdom. Now, I won't belabor the point from my previous sermon, but we saw from Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, and also from Isaiah 56, that our Lord values the eunuch. We were able to see a firsthand example of this in Acts chapter 8 when salvation came to the Ethiopian eunuch after Philip proclaimed the gospel to him. And prior to this point, eunuchs were placed outside of the sacred assemblies. They, They could not have the sign of circumcision, nor were they able to have children to pass on the inheritance of the covenant or the land. But in verse 12, Jesus pronounces that eunuchs and singles can be included in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, they can offer valuable service for the sake of the kingdom. And as we saw from 1 Corinthians 7, if one has been given the gift of singleness, that gift should be used for kingdom purposes, just as marriage is for kingdom purposes. Then in the next scene, Jesus continues this theme of family by emphasizing the importance of children people are bringing their children to the Lord, not to be healed, but so that the children might be blessed by the rabbi Jesus. Now, it's important to note that the disciples here rebuked the parents for bringing the children. They weren't rebuking the children. They, They weren't that callous. They were being protective of Jesus. They were probably trying to do some type of triage, keeping only the important cases coming before Jesus. And verse 2 tells us he was healing the people that were brought to him. To the disciples, that the master didn't have time to waste on blessing children. These people, as the text puts it, were being an inconvenience to the Lord. I, I can only imagine the line that began to, to form in front of Jesus once the celebrity Jesus blessed the first child. It would probably be like the equivalent of people trying to get a selfie with some kind of superstar. But Jesus' reaction is so different from how the governor or the chief priest or Caesar or any other important dignitary would have reacted. He welcomes the children. Those who would have been considered at worst a nuisance and at best an inconvenience, those considered the least of these were welcomed into his presence. And while we don't know how many children were brought to Jesus, the the plural pronouns would suggest multiple families, Jesus stayed to the end to bless every single one of them. And in the final scene of the chapter, we have this encounter with the rich young man. Now you may wonder, where did I get that description? It's found in verse 22, where he's described as young and having many possessions. This man's question of Jesus is very telling. Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? That question implies that he was concerned about life after death and that he already had a notion of how to achieve it, that somehow it must be related to performing enough good deeds. This man was seeking spiritual life without conversion. He wanted to earn his way into the kingdom. And Jesus' initial answer, as always, is masterful. There's only one who is good, no doubt meaning God. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus will only allow God's will to determine what is good. There's nothing that God does that is evil or bad. Everything he does is good. His will is good. His pure nature is good. Therefore, his words and his commands are goods. But that initial statement should have awoken the young man's heart here. There's only one Who is good and this young man should have sensed it is certainly not him but he still thinks he can meet the moral standards of goodness and yet he still needs assurance that he has done what is necessary to get him into the kingdom he inherently knows that he falls short somehow so he asked jesus which commandments do you mean verse 18 he said to him which ones And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In response, Jesus gives them the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. And by quoting Leviticus 19, 18, loving your neighbor as yourself, he implies the sum total of the latter part of the Decalogue. Now, any self-respecting Jew would have immediately picked up that the first four commandments were missing those which were how one relates to God. Not having any other God before him, not worshiping him through an image, not taking his name in vain and honoring the Sabbath. The young man should have offered those up as well, but Jesus is subtly trying to point out the significant thing that he still lacks. And so the man quickly offers up his obedience. (laughs) All these I have kept. What do I still lack? It's an interesting question. The young man believes he's offered perfect obedience, yet he still has no assurance. He has no peace. Tell me what I must do, Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Now, this is the Greek word teleos. It means complete, complete. Finished, perfect, made whole. It's the same word he used in the Sermon on the Mount. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says to the man, if you would be complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Essentially, Jesus' challenge to this man is, let me be enough for you. Let me be enough for you. And we can see the man's reaction in the next verse. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had too much security in his wealth. Despite being told he would have treasure in heaven by following Jesus, he preferred his earthly riches. Now, we have to remember that most Jews thought the wealthy would go to heaven. In their eyes, material wealth was a sign that God was blessing you because of your behavior. It was especially true with the Sadducees, but also carried over into the Pharisees. If you notice, throughout the Gospels, we never encounter a poor Pharisee. They are all able to give dinner parties. People assumed they were righteous, and God preferred them because he blessed them with riches. This is why the disciples act surprised at Jesus' next statement here. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Now let me pause just a moment to say, do not believe any stories about there being some type of tiny gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the needle's eye and that camels had to get down on their knees to go through it. That is a complete myth. It is a fabrication. In fact, I saw a friend's Facebook post saying that this was true, and to prove that it was true, they had a picture of a camel that was kneeling. That should convince me in my mind. I wanted to write underneath it, Facebook, fake news, fake news, fake news, Facebook. If you're going to remove any of them, remove that one. No such gate has ever been found in Jerusalem. There is no archaeological or documentary evidence there has ever been such a gate. Jesus' point is that it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven based upon his wealth alone. In fact, his wealth is most likely the very thing that prevents him from entering heaven. In regards to the wealthy, Paul even instructed Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Wealth can give a false sense of security. So Paul encouraged the rich that they were to use their resources to help others to acquire wealth in heaven. Now, let me also say that Jesus is not saying that that all wealthy people need to surrender all of their assets in order to enter into heaven. Jesus was addressing this man's problem, which was placing his faith in possessions rather than in Christ, which I am sure is a problem for many other wealthy people as well. He stresses it is with difficulty that a rich person enters the kingdom of heaven. This man's problem could have been that he found his identity in his job, and Jesus would have said, give up your job and follow me. Or he had a problem with pornography or drug addiction, or or he was consumed with his status in society, and Jesus says, give up those things and follow me. But we should note, Jesus' primary point here is that just because God grants wealth to an individual does not automatically mean that it is a so-called blessing. In fact, riches may be a test. What will you do if God gives you wealth? Will you use it on yourself alone and be wasteful with it? Or will you use it responsibly? and learn how to consistently bless others with it, to to use it for kingdom purposes. Wealth does not necessarily mean that God is pleased with a person and they get into heaven despite it being a common first century belief, which is why the disciples asked here, who then can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Praise God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He can do the impossible. He has a specific means by which someone can enter his kingdom, and it is through his Son. This is why Jesus came into the world, to live a perfect life, to become a perfect sacrifice on the cross, so that he might die for the penalty of our sins and grant us effectual right standing before the Father. Jesus died for rich people. Jesus died for poor people. He died for popular people. He died for outcasts. He died for the physically healthy and for the sick, the young and the poor, the people with darker shades of skin and lighter shades of skin. It is through the atoning work of Christ alone that any of us get into heaven. There is no other way. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Jesus is his way. That is why Jesus didn't just tell the rich man, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. That's not what he said. He said, give it, sell it, give it away to the poor and follow me. The emphasis was on being free of his possessions, being completely uninhibited to pursue Christ. Our buddy Peter understood the assignment. He heard that little bit about treasure in heaven, and he pipes up here, verse 27, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, note that this list here in verse 29 is not just riches, but anything that could inhibit our walk with Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's important to note that Jesus says for my namesake. This is exclusive to his authority. It's not just that we surrender our possessions or our dreams or our relationships. It's that we do so to follow Jesus and that we conform ourselves to his will. It may be that Jesus may not want you to surrender your house or your bank account or your relationships to others, but it is that you're willing to bring it under his lordship, that you would make him lord of everything in your life. It's as Jim Elliot said, when considering eternity, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what cannot be lost. And then Jesus expresses the theme of what he's been promoting in this entire chapter, and he's gonna do so in the later chapters, verse 30. We're gonna see this over and over again, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus turns the world's concept of kingdom and power upside down. What this world deems as important is not what our king deems important. What this present world thinks will be first will actually be last. And what normally is considered last will become first. With his first sermon in this book, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He went on to say that his citizens will be those who truly mourn over their sins, who are meek, who are pure in heart, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are merciful, who are peacemakers. All were qualities that the Roman world despised. They did not hunger or thirst for righteousness because they considered themselves righteous already. They were not peacemakers, but aggressors. They mocked meekness and placed a priority on strength. But in Jesus' kingdom, it is the last who shall be first, and the first shall be last. He turns the values of the world upside down. We're going to see this again. As Jesus continues describing his eschatological kingdom, this principle of last first and first last will be even more apparent. But let's stop and let's just take stock of what we learn concerning the heart of Jesus. Let's return to that question that I asked earlier What does Jesus value? What does our Lord value? We see from the beginning that yes, Jesus values marriage as it is an illustration of his covenant love with his bride, the church. But don't lose sight of the question that was being asked of him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Jesus' heart is for the poor woman who could be easily discarded by her husband Looking for any reason that they could to abandon their wife and maybe go out and look for a younger model. He values the wives that could be affected by such ruthless behavior. Then we see he values the eunuchs, those who are once on the outside of the sacred assembly. They can now draw near based upon his atoning work at the cross. He values the singles who have devoted themselves to the cause of the kingdom, those who might have been under, overlooked here. Christ cares about them. He values the children, those who were typically seen and not heard. He, he takes time out of his busy schedule to bless them, but, but I can't help but think by doing this, he also values the parents. THAT BROUGHT THE CHILDREN TO HIM IN THE FIRST PLACE. PARENTS ARE FRETFUL OVER THEIR CHILDREN AND OVER THEIR CHILDREN'S FUTURE. AND HE IS TAKING THE TIME TO BLESS THEIR CHILDREN IN AFFIRMATION, SAYING, YES, I SEE THAT YOU'RE DESIRING TO RAISE GODLY CHILDREN. I VALUE YOUR EFFORTS AS A PARENT TO BRING THEM TO ME. MOMS AND DADS, JESUS SEES HOW YOU'RE TRYING TO RAISE YOUR KIDS. And he values that. And perhaps the one that resonates with me is the rich young ruler. This young man who is self righteous enough to think that he has it all together, who has his worldly riches to fall back upon. And we see that Jesus does not value his wealth, he does not value his obedience to some external rules. He values the man's soul so much so that he grants him a personal invitation to follow the king. He valued his soul so much that he gave him a choice, the world or Christ's kingdom. And sadly, in this moment, he chose the world. And then to conclude the chapter, we see how Jesus valued his disciples. There's such a beautiful picture of Jesus' upside-down kingdom here. These men who follow him are not merely servants to the rulers, slaves to the master, a personal entourage to add some sort of prestige to King Jesus. These fishermen, these tax collectors, these former skeptics and doubters, these weak men will sit on thrones beside him and judge the nations. They will receive a hundredfold of whatever they gave up in the world. I really have no desire to stress the riches and the authority that one may receive in heaven. The real prize is here. To sit alongside King Jesus. To bask in the presence of the one that loved me so much that he yielded up his life upon the cross. Paid every single sin debt that I owed, past, present, and future. So that I might constantly delve into his treasury of mercy. This is what Jesus values. This is what he deigned to do for sinners such as you and me. When you consider a Savior who values and carries for the divorcee, the, the eunuch, children and parents, even the self-righteous and the wealthy fishermen and, and tax collectors here, why would you refuse to come to him? Why would you not want to make him Lord of your life, knowing he values you so much that he surrendered his own life for you? Why would you refuse to confess your need of him? He wants to put you on a throne and grant you eternal access into his presence. Oh, friends, if you had the Spirit illuminate the person of Jesus to you this morning, then let me tell you how you must come. You must value him more than your riches more than your life, more than this world, and particularly more than your pride. You must be willing to confess your sin and that only Christ can solve your problem. You must believe who He is, and you must believe His words. And for us Christians, what will we value? Will we value what Jesus values? Will we see that Jesus values the outcast? Those refugees that are lining up on the borders, those clients and families that Robin is serving here twice a week, he values them. Will you see that he values the little ones? Now, I realize at this point I could guilt you here and remind you that we need teachers in Sunday school. I'm not going to use guilt. Maybe the Lord is impressing upon you that you need to talk to Rick and Giselle about it. But we also see he values parents. He values the married, the divorced, the single. Obviously, he values the poor, but he also values the one that is trapped by their riches. Is there some adjustment you need to make in what you value? Do you value possessions more than people or riches more than relationships or status over evangelism? This world over Christ. What adjustments do you need to make to show that you value Jesus and the things that he values? Let's pray. Lord, there is so much that we are prone to value more than Christ. This world can disillusion us. We can look at the gifts that you have given us as the creator and begin to worship those gifts and submit to them rather than submit to the good giver. And so Lord, we pray that you would allow us to refocus our hearts and our minds upon the Lord Jesus, upon what he came to do, upon how he views the world, upon how he views his kingdom. And Lord, if there's something that we're trying to hold on to tenaciously, I pray that we will surrender it And we will say, no, it's only in Christ alone. Only Him that I can have any value, only Him that can reconcile me to you, only Him that can offer me clarity about how to live in this world. Let me look at what Christ has done for me so that it will reorient how I should view this world and His kingdom. We pray this in Christ alone. Amen.